You'll join me in Ephesians chapter 1, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2. We will be looking at verse 10 this morning, Ephesians 2 and verse 10. The title of our sermon is Created for Good Works. Our key words for our worshipers in training are works, workmanship, and walk. In the Western world, in the 20th century, one of the dominant philosophical positions that came into prominence was what we call existentialism. And one of the primary existential philosophers was a man whose name you've probably heard. It is Jean-Paul Sartre. And Sartre had a lot of unreasonable things to say, but one of his driving philosophies And really the driving notion behind all of existentialism is his famous quote, existence precedes essence. Now what does that mean? Here's what Sartre meant. It means what I do determines who I am. Have you ever heard that before? It's actually a very popular philosophy. People use that all the time today in attempts to encourage young people to achieve great things and aim for higher goals. It usually comes out sounding something like this. You can be anything you want to be. In other words, your actions determine your being. The best intention people say such things and mean something like work hard, keep after what you're doing, and if you have a goal, shoot for it, and as long as you keep after it, as long as you work hard, you'll get there eventually. And the intent behind that is to be very encouraging. Now, probably for a lot of people, especially if you're in your 20s or younger, Uh, That's not all that encouraging because you hear that so much that it's just a cliche and it doesn't mean a whole lot. But notice in that statement there is nothing with regard to aptitude. There's nothing with regard to one's gifts. It's all about goals and achievements. Do what you want to do and you will become what you want to become. Pastor Vody Balcom once said he noticed when he was on a college campus talking to students, it was really easy to know who all of the freshmen were because he would ask them, what is your major? And they would all say, I'm pre-med. And that's not to say that some freshmen who were pre-med wouldn't actually end up going to medical school and becoming doctors. But if you're getting C's in biology and you're struggling to pass a test in pre-algebra, we need to talk about aptitude and gifts. You can set all the goals you want and aim as high as you would like. You're not going to be a doctor. You have a far greater ability to do something great and helpful for the world by sticking to what you know and what you're good at and what you're gifted in instead of chasing a dream that doesn't fit. But that's hard to reason through when your whole entire life you've been, has been based on what you've heard in this existential idea. Existence precedes essence. I can be whatever I want to be based upon what I do do. In more recent years, 
the cliche has turned into something far more troubling than just the idea that you can achieve your goals if you keep after them. Existentialism is actually the root of what today is called gender identity. Because existentialism abandons the idea that I am what I am and I do what I do as a result of who I am and what I am. And it flips all of it and says, I do what I do. And based on what I do, I am what I am. And so in 2015, we saw a man being applauded and awarded for saying he's a woman and having a surgery in an attempt to make that his reality. Why? Because existence precedes essence. Just a few weeks ago, the Olympic Committee decided to allow transgendered individuals to compete in the Olympics against those of the sex with which they identify, not with those of the sex with which they are born to be. Why? Because existence precedes essence. All across the country, businesses, schools, churches are trying to figure out what to do. How do we deal with men who identify themselves as women? using women's bathrooms and locker rooms, women identifying as men using men's bathrooms and locker rooms. Why is that a question? Because in our culture, existence precedes essence. And fairly recently, we've looked at thousands upon thousands of babies murdered each and every day in the womb. And instead of being called babies, they're talked about as blobs of tissue or simply as the fetus, so as to redefine the reality altogether. But as long as we want to call it that, it is that, because existence precedes essence. You see, the consequence of our ideas, of our philosophical notions, are monumental. It may seem like a harmless idea when presented as you can be whatever you want to be, But there are far-reaching implications of such an idea. I'm guessing Jean-Paul Sartre didn't expect his philosophy to be what it is today. However, it has captured our culture's hearts and minds. It is the driving emphasis behind the moral revolution going on all around us. And today, people actually think it is reasonable to say something like, all identity is incoherent and unstable. All identity is constructed. No one has an essential nature. No one has a being that they have uh, to be true to. So you can be anything you want to be because nothing has meaning in and of itself. That meaning must be created. Now, of course, Christianity has always taught exactly the opposite of that. Now, Of course, on some level, we understand that what we do affects our being, but first and foremost, Christianity says that what you are must be honored. You cannot escape what God has made you to be. You being who you are is inescapable no matter how you try to change that. To say otherwise is to say that you have no essential design, that you have no essential nature that you have to honor. But Christianity says you were created with an essential design. 
And it's your job to understand and to walk in that design as God intended. And when you understand your design and you begin to walk in that design, that's when we begin to find who we truly are. You see, all of these other things, everything I'm setting my heart on because I've been told that I can do whatever I want to do is actually a big distraction. It is a big departure from the reality that I am who and what God has made me to be. And my goals should be driven by my design and my gifts. And when you live as you are designed... And when you're able to use your gifts as they were given to you, all of your purpose you were searching for is being found. As we've looked at Ephesians chapter 2 thus far in verses 1 through 9, Paul has given us a very comprehensive review of God's work in salvation in a very short space. It's quite basic, but it's also very profound what he has said. At the most basic level, we can say that Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 explains what a Christian is and how they came to be that way. And so far, we've seen the progression from what we were before Christ, what we are after Christ, and how God made us to be what we are in Christ And this morning we will finish out this section in verse 10 that teaches us that because of what we are in Christ, when God changes our hearts, when God gives us a gift of faith by his grace, we now have a responsibility. We now have an obligation to walk in what we were created to be. We don't do what we do and therefore we are what we are. No, Paul very explicitly tells us if we are in Christ... We are what God has made us to be, and therefore we have a responsibility of what we are to do. Paul shows us that there is a being that is more important than a doing. And if you're going to do good works, there has to be a change in your nature. If you're going to be a person of compassion, God has to give you a nature of compassion. If you're going to be a person like Christ, God has to give you a nature like Christ, and he does. So let's look at Ephesians 2. I want to read again the entire section for the context, but we're going to focus on verse 10 this morning. Uh, If you're using the blue ESV Bible, you can look to page 976. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now remember, we said last week that the order of the things that Paul outlines in verses 8 through 10 is crucial. The three elements he shows us are grace, faith, and works. And this is the order we must see them in. To mix that order up in any way, to get this wrong, will completely undermine and distort and get the gospel wrong. Grace, faith, and works in that order. So last week we looked at verses 8 and 9 and we saw these two points. First, if you have saving faith in Christ... It comes by grace alone. And second, if you have saving faith, you will find rest in Christ. So we've seen this progression from death to life and how a person becomes a Christian. So Paul now is answering the question, what does it mean now that I am a Christian and what will I do as a Christian? And so we'll look at those two things this morning. So our first point this morning is if you have saving faith, you are God's workmanship. We see that in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now the way Paul structures his statement here, he is saying you have been saved and as one who is saved, You are God's workmanship. And he keeps building and building, layer upon layer in his argument. Now, I want to draw attention to this word, workmanship. It's really beautiful in how it describes what God has done in us. The Greek word is poema, and it sounds a lot like, and it is, where we derive the English word poem. The literal meaning is something that has been made or a work or a making. So the word is used in a lot of various Greek writings to describe either a poem or a statue or a song or a piece of architecture or a painting. So on the whole, I really think uh, one commentator's translation captures best what Paul is getting at. He says that Paul is saying we are God's work of art. We are God's masterpiece. Isn't that beautiful? Think about that for a minute. The master artist who created the most beautiful realities that you could ever behold in this life, he says that you are his greatest work of art. God is the creator. Nothing exists apart from him. He brought everything into being. The heavens declare the glory of God The sky above proclaims his handiwork. The sun, the moon, the stars, the solar system, the galaxies, it is all the handiwork of God. And yet, as amazing and as breathtaking as all of the cosmos is, it is not his masterwork. Nature is constantly and consistently showing forth the glory of God. Have you ever taken the time just to sit outside in the quiet, take it all in? Most Lord's days, unless it's too cold, I like to sit outside in the quiet. 
Consider God's handiwork. Look at the skies. Look at the intricate design of the trees. To feel the air against my face. To smell nature. Or the paper mill, depending where you live. Nature breathes the glory of God. Have you ever seen something like the Grand Canyon or a vast mountain range from a high point or Niagara Falls? Those kinds of things have a tendency to just take your breath away. Have you ever contemplated how vast the ocean is? It's mind-boggling. Have you considered how small the earth is in comparison to all of the other planets and many of the stars and moons in our galaxy? It is fascinating. It is beautiful. It is stunning. It is breathtaking. In so many ways, it is incomprehensible. But none of that is the ultimate workmanship of God. Consider something even greater. Many of us have fresher memories of this than others. A newborn human baby. They come out of the womb, shriveled up prunes. All of the sudden, their eyes open, their mouth opens. They start to scream, some a lot louder than others. Their arms stretch out, their legs stretch out. This... The apex of God's creation, an amazing mind, taking in information every second from the very beginning of life. Everything that newborn is experiencing is being processed. It's funneled through their eyes, through their minds, through 125 million nerve endings working simultaneously all in one millisecond. Their ears are hearing, their skin is feeling, their nose is smelling, but even greater than that is the reality that each and every human being from the moment they are conceived is created to bear the image of God. And so he or she doesn't just have a body, they have an everlasting soul. And that newborn child has, despite its sin nature, a delicate moral sensibility. It has creative abilities and potential and possibilities that come with them. Augustine once said, men go abroad to wonder at the highest mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the season, at the circular motion of the stars, and yet they pass by themselves without wondering. Mankind is, without a doubt, the apex of God's creation. No angel or cherubim or seraphim can rival man because no angel or cherubim or seraphim is made in the image of God. And yet, even as wondrous and as beautiful as man is, man alone is still not the masterwork spoken of in our text. As God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. The greatest, most magnificent, highest, most ultimate workmanship of God is the man or the woman or the child who, despite being dead in transgressions and sins, has been made alive together with Christ by grace through faith. 
That is the ultimate, the apex, the greatest of all of God's handiwork. (laughs) Any one of us who has undergone the transformity and have actually been the subject of two creations by Christ, we are the handiwork of God. Our very existence is the result of the work of Christ. Colossians 1 says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Every human being that has ever lived is created and held together by Christ. But the masterwork has undergone a second creation in Christ Jesus. Christ, the Lord of all creation, is also the worker of of our salvation. And Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and behold, the new has come. This is far greater than Mount Everest or the Mariana Trench. It is far more magnificent than the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls. It is far more beautiful than every sunset of every tropical location on the planet. It is far more captivating and breathtaking than the furthest reaches of outer space because it cost the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit everything and because it involves the unparalleled power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Nothing in all of creation compares. And so the greatest of all of God's work in creation is that he made men alive together with Christ. Brothers and sisters, as the subjects of Christ's two creations, we are his ultimate workmanship. We are his masterpieces. We are his masterwork, and he has made us this way to be his bride. You can search all of the universe. You can look high and low. You will not find a more beautiful reality than that. And friend, if you're not a Christian, you have, in fact, been created in the image of God. But my prayer is that God would recreate you to be like Christ that you would be a new creation in Christ. By the grace of God, that you would have a new heart, a new life in him. Even though the image of God in you is fractured, you still know that God is who he says he is. And all of creation that I've talked about, all that you've observed, all that you have witnessed, in his creative power, in his ability, he is proclaiming to you that he is who he is. And while you may suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, you know who he is. And you know that you're responsible to him. And the good news is that even though apart from Christ you are an enemy of God, the same God you push against has made a way for you to draw near. Putting all of your hope and all of your trust in Jesus Christ who lived a law-fulfilling life, who died a sinner's death, 
was raised from the dead that we might live. And by grace, through faith, we can find true rest and purpose and joy and meaning in new life as new creations. Turning to Christ, repenting of our sins, and finding life. Now some of us, as Christians, we may actually doubt the reality of our being God's workmanship because we are weighed down by guilt. We are constantly forced by the reality of our flesh that we live in to consider our fallenness in a fallen world. And so we doubt our worth. We doubt the reality of what we are in Jesus Christ. But in Christ, we are of untold worth We are his work of art, and he is constantly working on his art, making us look more and more like him, sculpting and then painting and then writing our stories and then calling us to live that out day by day. Brothers and sisters, we are in the hands of the great maker. We are in the hands of the great sculptor who created the universe out of nothing and has never yet thrown away a rock on which... He has begun his masterwork of sculpting. His tools are Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God, his church, and our prayers. And each and every day, he's picking up that chisel, he's picking up his brush, he's picking up his pencil, and he is designing and remaking and remolding and perfecting until he has said, it is enough. And then we pass from this life into the next, into complete glory. And if you are in Christ, you are God's workmanship. That is amazing news. And being God's workmanship has all sorts of implications in how we love and serve and do life together with one another. Think about what it means in light of this to be a Christian friend. What kind of meaning does friendship take on when you understand each other to be God's workmanship? It means that you know your friend is something God is turning into a beautiful, magnificent masterpiece day by day. Something of breathtaking beauty. What it means to be a Christian friend is to say, I am walking with God in the realization of the greatness that God is creating out of you. I don't just see what I like about you now. I see the beauty of what God is continually doing in you. And it's when we understand this that we begin to walk with patience with one another. We don't get frustrated with one another as easily. Look, I wish it wasn't true, but I am going to fail you from time to time. I'm going to let you down. I'm not going to fulfill all of your expectations of me, even if they are legitimate and reasonable. Your expectations of me as your friend, as your pastor, as a fellow believer in Christ will not always be fulfilled. But we can all say that same thing of one another. And we can all understand that even though that's true, we are God's workmanship. We are in progress. Have you ever watched an artist work on something from start to finish? 
and early on from the very start, for the longest time, you just really can't figure out exactly what it's going to be. You can't imagine how that painting or that sculpture is going to look like anything that's worth admiring. And so for a while, you just hang out to actually see how terrible it's going to look because you think, oh, this person's supposed to be a great artist, but this looks awful, so I want to see that. But then, as it's coming together, in the end, you start to see something beautiful. It didn't look good for the longest time, but then they start some shading, they're adding some details, it really starts to stand out, and it's more real, and it's more beautiful until you truly see they've created a masterpiece before your eyes. I mean, I grew up watching Bob Ross on PBS, so I know what that's like. A happy little tree here, a happy little tree over there. That's us. That is what God is doing with us. We are taking shape. And all of us get to watch that in one another. Brothers and sisters, we need to be patient with each other. And the best way that can happen will be as we realize a masterpiece isn't finished in a day, in a week, in a month. Sometimes it takes years upon years. The Sistine Chapel wasn't painted in a week. What it means to be a Christian friend, what it means to be a Christian spouse, what it means is to be a co-partner with God in the development of of the splendor of his masterpiece. Because every Christian is being brought by God into that position of being a glorious work of art, a glorious work of his art. Well, what is the next thing Paul points to in verse 10? It is this. If you have saving faith, you will also have good works. Now again, remember the order. We talked about it last week. I mentioned it this morning. Grace, faith, and then works. Now just as important as it is to remember that order and to not get it mixed up in any way, it's also important for us to understand that Christianity is a very concrete thing. In other words, you can't walk around for five or ten years saying, I have received the grace of God. I have true faith in Christ. And then kid yourself if there isn't some concrete change in your character and your behavior. (laughs) If grace is present in your life, faith will follow. And if faith is present in your life, you are God's workmanship. And if you are God's workmanship, you will do good works. Another way we can say that is that there are two things Paul tells us in verse 10 that always result from grace and faith. First, you become God's workmanship, and as a result of being his workmanship, we walk in good works. Now, do you see how that differs dramatically from the existential ideas I explained at the beginning? Do you see how Christianity teaches that opposite of existentialism Being comes before doing. Who and what I am determines what I will do. If you're going to do good works, you have to first become God's workmanship. 
God has to do something in you. He has to give you a new nature. But that means that if you're a Christian, you're changing, you're, you're growing, you're, you're not staying as irritable as you used to be. You're not staying as anxious as you used to be. You're not staying as bitter as you used to be. You're not staying as prideful or arrogant or impatient or hot-headed as you used to be. You are changing and you cannot get out from under that. And if there is not progress and you are a Christian, then you need to consider whether or not you're, you're resisting the very things that Christ died for. He didn't just die to make you feel lovely and give you a position in heaven. He bled for your splendor. He bled for your holiness. He bled so that you would be without blemish before the Father. And you have to be reminding yourself, God wants most of all for me to be walking with him in holiness, to know him, to commune with him. And that is more and more possible when I am more and more committed to walking in holiness and utilizing all the means of grace he's provided for me in my life. And here's something else. If God is the sculptor and you are the marble, that means he may be coming at you right now with a very big chisel. It means every single thing that God brings into your life, even though it looks like he's knocking it off of you, you don't need that to become what God wants you to be. And sometimes we insist, I have to have that. That's, that's part of me. I need that. But the artist, the master artist is saying no. If I don't knock that off, you're actually never going to see the complete beauty of my full design. And you see the providence of God, all of the troubles, all of the difficulties, all of the suffering in your life, these are his chisel. And that's hard for us in so many ways. But that's what God tells us in his word so many times. Don't be afraid. Why? Because something beautiful is there. There are particular good works that you and only you can do. He's prepared them for you beforehand. Everything that's gone into your life so far, not only the good things, but also the very difficult, hard things, God, the great artist, if you are a Christian, has brought them into your life to turn you into a unique masterpiece. And there are people that he has purposed for you to help. There are good works that your trials and your experiences and your suffering and your gifts are uniquely tailored by God for you to do. There are deeds of compassion that require your unique experience in your life to be able to show. There are people whose lives are most dramatically impacted, not by my life or your neighbor's life or their, their best friend's life, but by yours. Why? Because of everything that's gone into your life, Every hammer of the chisel, God has created you for that purpose. And so you don't have to be afraid of your past. No matter what it looks like, that was part of God's preparation of you being able to do the good works he calls you to do. You know, you didn't have a whole lot to say about much. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose the people you grew up with. 
You didn't choose how tall you are. You didn't choose your gender. You didn't choose much of your IQ. You didn't choose your troubles. You didn't choose your ethnicity. You didn't choose to become a Christian. And you don't choose how you will die. But the artist is behind it all. And he says, you don't have to be afraid. If you have grace and faith, you are his workmanship. And that means the challenge is that he is changing you. And that's difficult because we have to grow. But the comfort is that he is in charge and that he is turning you into something beautiful, something valuable, something that is an expression of the inner being of the very artist himself. John Calvin writes, Paul does not say that God helps us. He does not say that the will is prepared by him, but then man has to act in his own strength. He does not say that we've been given the ability to choose what is right. Rather, he says that we are God's work and that everything good in us is his creation. That is God's workmanship. Not the power to choose what is good, but the right will itself, which he implants in believers. Without God's grace, we are nothing. And even the good works that we do were prepared by him in advance. Brothers and sisters, many of you do some wonderful things for the kingdom of God. But knowing what that work is and what it accomplishes for the glory of God should humble each and every one of us because we know it's not because we were smart or creative or showed enormous amounts of ingenuity to accomplish it. It is all because of God's grace, 100%. And it was prepared by God and implanted in us through our experiences, through our gifts, through the Holy Spirit at work to bring about his great ends. And what assurance, what comfort that should bring to us. God has prepared works in the church for the godly to do so that we may fulfill our calling right to the very end of our lives. God begins to do a work in you and he turns you into a masterpiece and he makes you a person unique in your beauty, in your ability, ready to do the very things he has prepared beforehand specifically for you to do. Think of that. Be amazed by that. There's great joy in that. You are in the artist's hands. Examine yourself. Are you working for his kingdom? If you're not, what are you waiting for? You have everything you need. You need not fear. And the Lord has already prepared it beforehand. Walk in it. Stop resisting his chisel. Because he's breaking away everything in order to bring up something far greater and more beautiful than we could ever imagine. Give yourself over to him fully. Because you are already declared to be his workmanship. And he has prepared good works for you to do as the masterpiece of all of his creation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in your word you remind us yet again of how glorious our salvation truly is of what Christ has accomplished for us, 
that we might live, and not just that we might live, that we might live abundantly because we have all of the spiritual blessings that are ours in the heavenly places and that we as your people are your workmanship, that we who have been made new in Christ are your crowning achievement of all creation. And I pray, God, that would humble each and every one of us, that it would give us an even greater measure of thankfulness in our hearts, and that as we look to what you have created us to be, so that we may do what you call us to do, that we do so with a great desire to bring glory onto you because it is even the good works that we do that happen by your grace and by your design. Father, help us to be faithful disciples and come what may that we see your handiwork in us, in others, in all of our circumstances in life that we might receive it and give thanks for it because we know you are making us to be more like Christ and preparing us for the day of resurrection. So, Father, we pray you would do all of these things for your glory and for the joy and thankfulness of your people. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.